The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, continuing a discussion of the Eightfold Path. Um, I'll start by just kind of, again, doing an overview of the Eightfold Path. We're in the middle of the, we're right in the middle of the Eightfold Path, actually. Um, um, so, just a, just a kind of a brief overview. There's three sections to the Eightfold Path. Uh, there's what we could call the wisdom aspect the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path, which is wise understanding and wise intention. And this is kind of the framework that we, um, the Dharma framework that we begin to see is supportive for orienting our lives. So understanding, wise understanding, is the beginning to understand the actual um, teachings, instructions, practices that the Buddha offers. And wise intention is is the recognition of of the fact that um, these sound like they'll be helpful and the intention to actually follow through and act on them. So at the beginning of the Eightfold Path, uh, we need to have some kind of wisdom and understanding to even begin taking action in, um, towards a deeper kind of happiness, towards a truer kind of happiness. And the way we normally uh, orient our lives towards happiness is, so it's, a, it's a little bit diluted, um, we're normally orienting our lives to try to get things, um, to have things, and, and feel that the having of things, or the having of opinions. I mean, the, the, um, we, we also try to acquire status in a way, the good opinions of others. Um, so we're, we're acquiring. We're trying to acquire as our main mode for happiness. And the Buddha says, you know, this is turned around, actually. The, 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 the best way towards happiness is to let go. So we um, begin to learn about how the Buddha taught about letting go and uh, ways that he taught us to explore it ourselves. And we begin to engage if we find it interesting, uh, if we find it speaks to us. There's actually a a sutta. I don't have the reference with me, but uh, the Buddha says, you know, it's an amazing thing that when, um, when there's someone who comes into the world... Uh, who speaks the Dharma of non-attachment? And he's referring to himself in this way. He says because it was a it was a it was an unusual teaching in his time. This teaching of letting go, the teaching of not being attached to having things. He says it's an amazing thing that people who are normally so drawn to attachment that when. Uh, a Buddha comes into the world, when someone comes into the world who speaks this truth of non-attachment, that they actually listen and find it interesting. (laughs) So this is an amazing thing. (laughs) And it is kind of amazing, but I think it speaks to the fact that we at some level understand that this endless cycle of getting things isn't really what makes us happy. So that's the first section of the Eightfold Path, the wisdom section. The middle section of the Eightfold Path is the um, section on ethical conduct. And um, this is where we are right now. Last, this is comprised of wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And last time I was here I talked about wise speech. So today I'll primarily talk about wise action. Um, and this ethical section is, is about... So once we've begun to see how do we orient our our lives towards letting go, we also begin to see that um, a lot of the teaching, the orientation of wisdom around for the, that the Buddha teaches is around letting go of things that cause suffering, letting go of, of ways that we behave and mental um, training to help us let go of ways that we behave that um, leads us to suffering. And a main section of this, or a main... Um, Understanding is that if we're acting in ways that cause suffering or cause harm in the world, that it's not going to support us to um, to letting go of these uh, qualities of mind that actually lead us into suffering. So the wise um, wise the ethical conduct section is about. Um, 
engaging in skillful ways in the world. It's not about what we normally think of as right and wrong. It's not what we normally think of in that way that, you know, it's, um, or bad and good. Um, it, it's, it's more about what's helpful and what's not helpful in terms of leading us towards a happier life. And so um, this ethical teaching in the Buddha's realm is, it's, it's practical. He says, you know, if you engage in these ways, if you engage in ways that involve you know, lying, cheating, killing, stealing, um, that ultimately it doesn't serve you. And so it's helpful to let go of those kinds of actions and begin to reorient towards kind of qualities that are opposed to those. So compassion, kindness, generosity, friendliness. So the, the, um, the teaching in ethics is pragmatic and it's oriented around what leads us towards happiness and leads us away from struggle, from suffering in our lives. Then this uh, last section of the Eightfold Path is the aspect of mental cultivation. And this is an understanding that, um, um, you know, the roots of our struggles actually go very deep. They're not just um, at the level of how we behave, but they're rooted deeply into the structure of how we think. Um, And so the mental training section wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration begins to um, provide some tools for us to, to begin to shift not only how we act, but how our minds function. It's kind of like turning a battleship when it comes to, the turn, to turn, turning the way the mind works. Um, it's relatively easier to engage in conduct, um, you know, to, to engage in the ethical conduct aspect to, to change our behavior. It's relatively easier to change our behavior than it is to change our minds. But it is possible to change our minds, to reorient our minds away from uh, the root causes of, of struggle, of suffering, which in um, the Buddha uh, very succinctly pointed to as greed, wanting, wanting to have things, aversion, wanting to get rid of things, and delusion, confusion about what's happening. So there are uh, tools that the Buddha offered in uh, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration that help to, to turn our minds as well as our actions. <clears throat> so today, in talking about um, wise action, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about the benefits of, of, of this ethical aspect of the path. I'll just say a little bit more about that before I go into wise action in particular. Um, and when we engage in ways that uh, are non-harming, and really I think that this whole ethical conduct aspect is truly about non-harming. That's the whole orientation. Um, again, not about right and wrong, it's about recognizing that certain kinds of actions will cause harm, not only to others, but to ourselves. And the Buddha instructing his own son around this uh, teaching, he said, just look at what's happening, and before you act, think about whether this is going to cause harm to somebody else, or to yourself, or to both. And if it is going to cause harm, then don't do it. And then while you're engaged in something, if you see that harm is coming of it, stop doing it. And then he, he suggested to his son to not stop there, but you know, even after things have happened, you may notice that harm did come from an action. And that, then the instruction there isn't to beat yourself up about it, but to just um, to, to recognize, okay, harm came from that kind of action, so to try to uh, refrain from that kind of action in the future. He talks about... Um, opening that action to someone, a a companion, uh, a a spiritual companion, to kind of, almost as confessional in a way. Um, 
And he didn't in particular speak about making amends, but I think we can include that also uh, when we've caused harm, to skillfully make amends. And there, there can be times that, um, you know, if we go back to someone, um, um, just to be sure that the making amends isn't um, strictly to, uh, to, to, to ease your own conscience, but also to... Um, you know, to somehow support that other person. Because sometimes there can be a kind of way in which um, we bludgeon each other with, <laughs> with the truth, in a way. So what I think, the, one of the things I reflected on around what the benefits of this aspect of ethical conduct is, it, is it, it really connects us with other people that when we behave in, in ways of non-harming, it encourages us to think about other people and, and how they are impacted by our actions. So it creates this kind of field of connection for us to, to contemplate. How are others impacted by what I do? So it creates a field of peace and harmony in our lives to engage in this, these practices. It's also said to offer two beautiful um, benefits. One that's called the gift of fearlessness, which is that um, in engaging in these teachings or in these practices of wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, that beings begin to understand, people begin to understand that they're safe with us. So that they don't have anything to fear in our presence. Well, that's the gift of fearlessness. That's a gift offered to others. And then the gift that we get in return, that we receive in return, is what's called the bliss of blamelessness. Which um, is that, you know, the true recognition of, I, I don't have anything to regret, anything uh, to, um, that, that, that regret actually is a big source of, of agitation in our minds. So we, um, in engaging in this way, um, give ourselves a gift of kind of ease of mind. So for wise action, as with uh, the, the um, other aspects of this wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood with this ethical conduct component of the Eightfold Path. The aspects of wise action are, ref- are stated as actions to avoid. So wise action is, is a, about refraining from certain actions that the Buddha said, you know, if you're going to engage in these actions, they'll cause harm. <laughs> you know, So these are good ones to avoid. <laughs> uh, and so for wise action, that is refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what is not given, or taking what does not belong to you, and um, refraining from a sexual misconduct. So while they are stated in the negative uh, as actions to avoid, so this is, this is looking, again, this, this aspect of the path is looking at our outer conduct, how we engage with other people. But it does connect with our inner conduct, our inner minds, how our minds are inclining. Um, So the understanding is that if we are engaged in these kinds of actions intentionally, because they all include a component of intention, that the teaching in general is, I mean, we could reframe each of those. So refraining from following through on the intention to kill. Refraining from following through on the intention to take what is not given. Refraining from following through on the intention towards uh, sexual misconduct. So that the, um, they're, they're all associated with this aspect of intention. Um, so, for instance, if you you know, or walking across the lawn and step on a spider and don't even know the spider is there, there has been the act of killing, but the intention to kill that being was not there. So just thinking about that in your own mind, you know, what's the difference in your mind between, 
walking across, the, the fact that that spider died, you know, walking across the lawn, stepping on a spider, versus, you know, seeing a spider on your wall and picking up a shoe to, to whack it. A very different quality in the mind around the fact that that spider died. So it really is pointing to the, um, to the intention in the mind. And um, it's understood that as we engage in these refraining from these intentions, so we refrain from the intention to kill, that it cultivates a beautiful quality in the mind. It cultivates compassion. We refrain from the intention to take what's not given. It begins to cultivate contentment and honesty. We refrain from uh, sexual misconduct. It, it cultivates the quality of, it's said traditionally, it cultivates the quality of fidelity um, um, because primarily it's referring to, in, this, in the traditional uh, sense, it's referring to refraining from adultery. But we'll get more into how it applies uh, in a broader way in our own culture. So each of these actions to avoid, in a way, is paired with a beautiful quality that also kind of is cultivated through this act of refraining from following through on the unwholesome intention. So the first part, refraining from killing beings. I'll read, I'll read from the suttas each of the little sections that... Um, the Buddha says about this. Um, Someone avoids the taking of life and abstains from it without stick or sword, conscientious, conscientious, full of sympathy, one is desirous of the welfare of all sentient beings. So right there in the definition, he, he ties both uh, refraining from the, uh, the action to kill and the um, being conscious of this wish or this uh, kind of the direction of moving towards wishing that all beings have have happiness and their um, the welfare of all beings. So there's some pieces to this, and again, I want to highlight the aspect of intention. Um, so the commentaries have augmented this definition that's here. I mean, here it basically sounds like the active avoids taking up stick or sword or gun or nuclear bombs. (laughs) (laughs) um, But the commentaries actually expand that to not only the active um, killing, but the uh, telling someone else to kill. Um, so that, you know, it's not just the, the action. The commentaries say that taking life is the vol- vol- volition of killing expressed through body or speech. So to, to, to ask somebody else to kill something is also um, um, as, as um, ethically inappropriate as um, actually killing a being. So in terms of the intention part, I just mentioned this example of the spider. Um, Part of what I think this, looking at the intention aspect, you you know, the refraining from following through on the intention to kill, um, I think part of this is supportive, at least in my mind it's supportive, because you know, it's, it's, it's an acknowledgement that there is going to be um, some um, challenge in the mind. And yet if we can manage to not follow through on the intention, we are still, um, it's still a beautiful thing. You know, that that the, the, there's a, a teaching about the precepts, which are called training, the precept, the term precept actually means like something like training rule or training guideline. And um, 
these aspects of wise action are included in the precepts. Um, and so the, you know, the training is to avoid from the killing, stealing, etc. Um, you know, even when, even when there's that kind of impulse... You know, so it's kind of an acknowledgement that those impulses may be there, but the, the precepts are kind of these guidelines that help to keep us um, from creating additional um, suffering in the world by following through on those intentions. So essentially, um, we undertake the training to refrain from these actions because they're usually associated with unskillful, unwholesome states of mind. And this very refraining on the action, kind of with the intention towards turning that battleship, turning the mind towards peace, towards harmony, begins to uh, allow the heart and mind to let go of those unwholesome intentions of greed, aversion, and delusion, and to cultivate the corresponding beautiful intentions of generosity, of kindness, of compassion, of wisdom. So the teaching on um, this ethical uh, conduct around refraining from killing is, it's a, it's, there's a couple of, there's more pieces around this. I mean, often we, I think, at least I've had this notion of um, there being kind of this You know, it's like it's just it's just either on or off. It's either good or it's bad. And the the teaching here is much more shades of gray in a way. Um, the the recognition around these actions and following through on these intentions is that it it ultimately, if we follow through on these intentions to kill, to steal, to uh, engage in sexual misconduct, to lie. To, if we engage, if we follow through on those actions, there will be a kind of a rebound on our minds that we will uh, suffer. And it will it will create suffering in the world to follow to follow through on those intentions. But it also will rebound on our own minds, and it will um, create a kind of a climate of struggle and unhappiness in our own lives. So this is, this is related to the teaching on karma, um, that our actions, our intentions, the, the, the uh, motivation behind our actions is the important piece to... It's the important piece to pay attention to if we're following through on motivations that are rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion, there will be suffering that results in some way, shape, or form. Um, Now, the suffering that results, there's all kinds of gradations of suffering. I think we all know that. You know, there's, there's, you know, small regrets about things that we've said, and then there's huge uh, regrets about actions we may have done. So the, um, the, the kind of that rebound, in a way, um, is very... Um, it's not cut and dried. It's not like you can say, you know, if you acted in this way, this is what's going to be the result. There's one teaching around karma where the Buddha talks about... Um, Imagine if you have a, a glass of water and you drop a tablespoon of salt in that. Does that water become undrinkable? And yes, it does, you know. And yet, he says, if you have a huge pond of water and you put a tablespoon of salt in that pond and then take a glass out of that pond, you know, the water will be drinkable. Um, so the, you know, the, um, the, the, the small glass of water versus the large pond is kind of correspondent to kind of the field in which we're acting. And then the teaspoon of salt is corresponding to the intention that we're acting on, perhaps an unwholesome intention that we're acting on. And so if we're acting on an unwholesome intention and we have a very small pool of purity in our minds, it will have a bigger impact on us. If we have a a larger um, 
climate of purity in our minds, a larger sense of of um, uh, well wishing of um, wishing to engage wishing to to um, let go of greed, aversion, and delusion, then that that action will have a kind of smaller rebound on us. So this is the teaching on karma, and I talked about this a few months ago, so I don't want to do the whole teaching on karma right now, but um, just to give you a sense that this is not, it's not like a cut-and-dried teaching. So there's some understandings of some gradations of... Um, moral responsibility here. So some of the things they say in particular, what impacts this rebound effect, are um, that it's essentially more ethically serious to kill a human being than it is to kill an animal. More ethically serious to kill an animal, a mammal perhaps, than it is to kill an insect. And so there's these, these gradations. It's also understood to be more ethically serious to kill a a virtuous, pure person than an unvirtuous person. So, again, it's not, it's not um, like cut and dried. It's not straightforward. But the, the teaching here is that there will be some kind of rebound. You know, that sometimes in, in thinking about this or talking about this in particular, people often, you know, come up with the example of Hitler. You know, this is a, this is a great example, you know, um, I think probably the world as a whole was better off that he died. Um, and so, you know, what's the karma of those people who, who killed him? You know, they, and some people he said... Oh, Hitler committed suicide? Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought he actually got bombed in his bunker, but he committed he suicide. Oh, he had. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll put that aside for a moment. To substitute someone else in there. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Um, so, um, you know, there is, uh, there is some rebound, even in, even in killing someone who is, you know, really ethically evil. You know, I think, in fact, that, that you know, our police force kind of acknowledges this in a way. You know, if, if somebody has to kill in the line of duty... You know, they're given a leave because it's, I think it's understood that, you know, it does have an impact on us to kill. You know, so it's not, it's not, it's not that, you know, we're not, um, you know, that we just kind of go on our merry way after we've killed somebody. You know, there, there is an impact. And so that's what this is talking about. And the kind of level of the impact it will have will vary for you or for whoever based on many factors. It's not cut and dried. Um, so this, you know, and the, the teaching actually on karma, this kind of, this net of karma, the Buddha said, you know, if you try to contemplate um, how all of your actions have led to this moment and how the action you're taking in this moment is going to go out into the future, he said, you'll go mad. You know, it's not possible to really, to really um, you know, contemplate that web but this is a kind of a natural law. Again, this isn't like the Buddha is somehow up there, you know, deciding, yep, that person gets that much and that person gets that much. It's understood as being a, a kind of a natural law, that it's just the, the cause and effect nature of the following through on those actions that it will rebound on us in some form or other. And how it rebounds on us varies depending on kind of the, the climate of our, of our minds. So there's a kind of a famous um, story in the suttas that I like to point to because I really think this also acknowledges the, the fact that this is not black and white. There was a mass murderer in the time of the Buddha. His name was Angulimala. And his name came from the fact that for each of his victims, he cut off their finger and... Uh, uh, created a, a garland of the bones of his victims. And so Anguli means finger and Mala means garland. So he was called Finger Garland. Um, 
and he had killed 999 people. Um, and the Buddha, uh, he, he was kind of on a rampage, and he had actually been instructed by a, a teacher in a, in a kind of a deceitful way that his spiritual path depended on killing people. So he had, like, he was acting out of delusion. But he had, he had kind of, you know, gone mad with this delusion, and um, he was going to kill his own mother um, because his mother was coming um, kind of easy, you know, coming to see him. His mother was coming to see him. And he, his teacher had told him, you need to get a thousand fingers. Um, and so he was going to kill his mother. And the Buddha saw this um, and said that the Buddha had these powers of being able to see people's minds. Um, and the Buddha is said to have seen the fact that he was about ready to kill his mother. And this has very, very uh, strong rebound on the mind. Um, so he decided that he would intervene and he kind of put himself in the way of this uh, monk, kind of inserted himself between uh, Angulimala and his mother. And, and Angulimala thought, oh wow, this is great. I don't have to kill my mother, I can kill his monk. This will be much easier. <laughs> and um, the Buddha somehow managed to um, kind of still his mind through his presence and get him to see what he was doing. And um, I won't tell the whole story. It's a great story, but um, long story short, Angulimala um, decided to uh, become a monk and um, spent some time sitting in meditation and became fully enlightened, um, which means you know, that there, that there is, uh, one of the kind of things about, or understandings about someone who's fully enlightened is that they essentially cannot engage in unethical conduct. Their minds are so pure, they cannot engage in unethical conduct. So his transformation over the course of a few years of meditation practice, I don't know how long it took him, but, um, you know, I can't even imagine what was going through his mind. I mean, I know in my own mind when I sit down in meditation how small things I've said and done, like just, you know, they become huge. So he must have gone through a lot in that uh, process. But so this is a real strong teaching, I find, on the fact that, you know, it's not cut and dried, you know. The Buddha actually knew that he had that capacity to awaken and stopped him from killing and turned his direction towards cultivating wisdom and compassion and his mind let go of that direction. So engaging in unskillful action doesn't mean that there's a deterministic result. Again, this is very, you know, it's, it's very complicated. But I, I take a lot of heart from that teaching. It's like, you know, I haven't killed any people, you know. It's like, if I, I, at times I was feeling like, well, I'm just not worthy. I'm not worthy of, of, you know, being completely awake. And I thought of Ingulimala. It's like, well, if he can do it, <laughs> maybe I can do it. <laughs> so the exploration um, of engaging in this intention to refrain from killing begins to cultivate compassion in our hearts. Um, you know, we, 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 in this exploration around, you know, refraining from killing living beings, as I said, you know, it, it makes us think almost from the other being's perspective. How is it going to impact them if I act in this way? And so that kind of exchange of self for other, I think that's part of the way that this refraining from acting in ways that harms others begins to cultivate these beautiful qualities. So refraining from killing begins to cultivate this quality of compassion. Okay, I better move on. (laughs) Talk about the next two aspects of wise action. So refraining from taking what is not given. Again, I'll read the the section here. Or, well, wait a minute. I mean, how about questions instead? (laughs) We can we can follow on next week. I don't have to finish a Dharma talk. (laughs) Yeah, Jen. 
Oh, the mics. Um, you know, and hopefully this is just a real quick response, but I, it seems that um, in the time of the Buddha, there were so many examples of people being enlightened, and um, we don't hear about that right now. So are we not just being enlightened now, or did they have more of an environment? I'm not... Well, I, you know, you know that, that's an interesting question. Um, um, you know, what, why... I mean, it is, there is kind of this... I mean, we, there are apparently a few people. I mean, the Saito Tejaniya's teacher, Shui Umin, was said to have been fully enlightened. Not that he ever said that himself. Um, I never met him, but I did meet someone who met him. Was it that person or... Well, anyway, there was, there was a, somebody who met a person who was said to have been fully enlightened. And he said when he looked into his eyes, he said it was just like looking into this deep uh, well. And it somehow turned his, you know, turned his heart to this space of just silence and, and emptiness. You know, and I have walked into a monastery and in the Sagain Hills where this monk practiced, and I don't think he's fully enlightened, but um, um, but he he spends all his time in silence and just practicing, and he, he lives a very simple life. Um, and when I walked, just walked into the gate of his monastery, I felt like poof, I was just walking into this well of peace and calmness. So I think there there may be some beings out there that um, uh, are fully enlightened. Um, my understanding is that you know the Buddha. The Buddha was probably an amazing inspiration. <laughs> you know that that having his example so like right in front of you um, would have a tendency to. Uh, spur you on perhaps more than um, than we can be spurred on <laughs> somehow but i mean but but on the other hand you know the um there are there is this understanding about uh enlightenment being a kind of a gradual awakening um, many of the stories in the suttas are something like um well there's two kinds of forms of the stories there's one where often they're listening to a discourse by the buddha and, you know, if you read those discourses, they, they can kind of sound like guided meditations. You know, so the Buddha's giving a guided meditation and somebody is just following along that guided meditation and they become fully awakened while hearing that discourse. Then there's another, another story of um, they're, that they're either they're fully awakened or sometimes they attain what's called the eye of the Dhamma, which is uh, said to be the understanding that... Uh, orients you towards liberation, and that's um, that's this uh, this first aspect of you know the gradual uh, gradual phases of of awakening. Um, and there, there are things that fall away, are said to be things that fall away, as the more and more we um, let go. And in this first place, the first aspect of awakening, it said that the um, um, belief in a personality, that, that the belief in an identity goes away, um, that um, a doubt in the teachings of the Buddha, there's a being a possible path to liberation goes away, and that a, a kind of a belief in just acting in certain ways will lead to liberation. There was a lot of, a lot of, um, um, rites and rituals in the time of the Buddha. You know, if you bathe yourself in the river Ganges enough, you'll purify your mind. And the Buddha says, well, what about the fish? Are they enlightened? You know, <laughs> you know and he says it takes intention. It's not just the action. So this is, again, this is connecting to his teaching around, you know, wise action. You know, the, it, it takes the intention connected with the action to be productive. Um, and then going on, you know, the... Um, at the third level, there's said to be four levels of awakening. At the third level of awakening, it's said that the mind becomes purified of greed and aversion. Um, and that's, a, that's pretty far in there. Um, 
And then at the second level of awakening, it said that the greed and aversion diminish. You know. And then at the fourth level of awakening, that's when delusion goes away. That's when um, restlessness goes away. And that's when um, a, a subtler form of belief, I am, goes away. Um, so that, that there's kind of this, these phases of awakening. And I, I, I know a lot of people who are at least at that first stage. I feel like, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know a lot of people at that stage. Um, maybe a few who are at the second. And the third, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, you know, even the Dalai Lama, there's a kind of a fun story. Uh, he was talking to Oprah. Uh, Oprah got to interview the Dalai Lama. And, um, and she asked him... Um, you know, do you have any regrets? And he, his response, he thought, he thought in silence for a while. He said, well, my relationship to mosquitoes is not very good. <laughs> and she says, that's all you have to you know, regret is your relationship to mosquitoes? You know, so, you know, that... that um, that kind of indicates a kind of the purification of mind. Um, you know, even in your own even in your own practice, you've probably seen a lot of lessening of the ways you hold, the ways you cling, and that's in the trajectory. It's in the path. So you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think that. Um, I have, I have a very strong sense that we can become very free in our very lives, the way that we live, the way that we function in our very lives. There are many stories uh, in, the, in the time of the Buddha of people who are um, lay people attaining this third stage of completely letting go of greed and aversion. And so, you know, that's really free. I mean, that's, that's really free. To, to not have any greed or aversion in the mind, but um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think. I think it's partly, partly because the, as I said, the Buddha was a very powerful inspiration, <laughs> and and I think we see that too. You know, when somebody comes who has that kind of purity, like Gandhi, you know, it inspires people to more than they think they could be. Pu- possibly do or or um, you know Martin Luther King you know what an amazing being he was um, so I, you know I think that that having a being like that right in front of you <laughs> would be pretty inspiring Uh, I remember um, Eckhart Tolle saying that if you have a tremendous... He was ready to commit suicide before he broke through. And he said people with uh, pain bodies, that either from their past or... And like this man who killed so many people, that sometimes those that have been so moved away from light uh, have the have a, a quicker have, doesn't take as long for us ordinary slobs to get through <laughs> <laughs> well the, you know there, there's um, there's um, there's a teaching that the, the Buddha offered which was that there's four different ways that people can kind of move to this full awakening it can be fast and pleasant <laughs> it can be slow and pleasant it can be fast and unpleasant, <laughs> or it can be slow and unpleasant. <laughs> and maybe the different gradations of, of pleasant, unpleasant. But, you know, there is, there is an understanding, there's, there's another piece around that, that what you said reminded me of, and that, um, um, you know, that people who have a kind of an aversive tendency... Um, experience in a way much more unpleasantness in their in their lives and when we turn to our own suffering um, that's often experienced as unpleasant 
And when we turn to the fact that we have been creating suffering, it's often experienced as unpleasant. Um, there is a kind of an understanding that if there is strong suffering, it's a stronger motivation to do the practice. And I think that's probably what he's referring to. You know, that even little giving, even little giving up, or letting go, can create the sense of freedom, which is astounding. Yes. So uh, you want more of that. And I do think the more you want, the more you get, the more you want, and the more you're able to get. I do think that. Just little things you let go, and you can see how letting go is the whole message. Exactly. And, you know, the, the, the little things that we let go of, actually, you know, the, the ways that we tend to hold on to things are, there's like, we have similar patterns in our minds. So, you know, if, if we, you know, tend to react with impatience, there'll be small impatiences in our lives. And there'll also be these huge impatience things in our lives. And if we can begin to let go of the smaller ones, it supports our, and see the benefit of that, it supports our uh, willingness to engage with turning to be with the, the larger struggles, the larger suffering of the bigger forms of our suffering. But I, I think there's, there's a similarity in the ways that we suffer in the small and in the large. And so that's partly why the letting go of the, the smaller ones is so helpful for us. And it gives us the confidence to, yeah, this is helpful. <laughs> I'm going to continue with this. Yeah. And there was something over, there was something over here. And then, okay. let's go this way first. <laughs> and then behind you. And then... Um, over here. So we'll do that. One, two, three. So um, in speaking about letting go, I had an interesting conversation with Mary last week after our our group here. And um, so something I tried, and it's one of the things that actually brought me to meditation and Buddhism, is that in the car when someone else is driving, well, my husband to be specific, <laughs> <laughs> and he's driving, he drives very aggressively and I'm a nervous wreck. I'm just a nervous wreck, and I'm gasping, and adrenaline's pumping. And, and so I originally signed him up for, like, a meditation course. And, <laughs> and, um, and so, and I found that it was really helpful to me in my everyday life, and that was, like, two or three years ago. So on, I've been going on this journey, and, um, but all, and, and it's to the point where we listen to Dharma talks together in the car, and that helps, actually, sometimes on the longer trips. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the problem, I'm, uh, shorter trips, like to San Francisco or something, is I'm, it's, it's nerve-wracking. And so... It's also we, probably um, a very um, healthy response, in a way, to have fear arise when there's danger. <laughs> it is, especially if there are children in the backseat and all of that. It's totally a healthy response but it's aversion at its utmost i mean yes. and uh-huh. it doesn't do anybody it doesn't change the situation and so, so, so yeah looking at the distinction between the aversion and the healthy fear yes exactly right and so i thought i'm going to let go of this and we had had this conversation about important people in our lives and the patterns you get into and so forth so I literally just meditated while he was driving. I just closed my eyes, and I listened to the patter of the rain on the windows and the sounds and my breath, and it made a huge difference to the point that we were actually on the wrong freeway going the wrong direction, and my eyes were closed, and I didn't even know. It's like, so, uh, so it was really helpful, and, and when we arrived at the place we were supposed to be, I was so much calmer. Mm-hmm. And it really helped a lot. And so, I mean, it's just one approach. There could be other healthy approaches to this situation, I'm sure. But so that letting go of that pattern of aversion in a situation that, you know, of course I could just drive, but then there's other complications with that. But (laughs) yeah. um, Yeah. yeah. Looking at all the skillful means around it, I think. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's very helpful. But, um, and then one other really quick thing. so when it comes to wise action and killing, for me, the hardest part is the way I eat and 
considering being, you know, a vegetarian, and I'm not. And so, nor month, was the Buddha. He wasn't. No, so the Buddha was not a vegetarian. Um, um, so I'd like to know more about that and your your personal experience um, with that. Why don't I? Are you going to be here next week? Okay, why don't I talk about that some next week? I'll follow on there. Um, let me make a note of that. Um, and help me remember. <laughs> um, um, just so we can get to a couple more questions, because w- that would actually be longer than the time I have left. <laughs> okay. Uh, my name is... Is this on? It is. Okay. My name is John, and... To me, I, I sort of feel the distinction for me uh, in uh, harming or killing is not between virtuous and unvirtuous, but between dangerous and not dangerous. Because there are some people who are unvirtuous but don't present a danger to others. I mean, uh, and I also struggle also, it's to me, it's not just an issue of killing versus not killing. There's an issue of causing prolonged pain, mm. which I think can be just as uh, serious, okay. equally as serious and as The torture, issue, torture kind of. Uh, as, as killing, especially if the killing is swift and painless. I mean, which in some ways almost bothers me, sometimes bothers me less than the issue of causing, uh, uh, being prolonged Mm-hmm. Suffering, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then there's just also the issue of uh, is there a uh, is there a time when the uh, for greater good the uh, uh, killing of innocent is justified? I mean, some people think it is in wartime. I can think of instances where it might have been, and uh, others where I think it was not. So again, you know, this notion of justified. It's not, I mean, that's kind of in the realm of social ethics. Right. And what the Buddha is talking about is not social ethics. It's the kind of, uh, the deeper ethics of our mental, of our mind stream. Um, so it's not about whether something's justified or not. It's how it will rebound on you. Um, okay, good. Yeah. And then the whole other, other questions you were you were. Um, um, talking about, I think you know that some, you know, the swift killing versus the torturing. I mean, you know, if in fact you do have to kill a being, you know, um, I I think that that probably is in that terrain of that that area of you know if you know if there is some compassion in your heart, let's make this painless, swift and, and painless versus let's prolong it. You know, there's more aversion in the heart in the prolonging. Then in the uh, let's you know so there may be some compassion in the heart which again that the threads come together to have it rebound on the mind so that's the way to uh, to explore that that aspect yeah and we're after eleven now so um, if you bring you could bring your question next week if you'll be here next week so yeah we'll continue I mean that's part of what I like about these you two usually things. start this at 10 or 10 15 I, tar- I start the talk at 10 05 oh okay I see <laughs> all right I, I thought I, I came in just as you were starting to talk I thought there was going to be 10 more minutes of meditation <laughs> so thank you